Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Rob Breckenridge. On today's episode, Don Cherry removed as the host of Coach's Corner after some controversial remarks Saturday night. We discuss it all with Post Media National Sports columnist Scott Stinson. Also, Premier Jason Kenney has announced the members and the mandate of this fair deal panel looking at ways that Alberta can strengthen its place in confederation. We hear from former provincial cabinet minister and one of the original signatories of the original firewall letter, Ted Morton. You people love, you, you, they come here, whatever it is, you love our way of life, you love our milk and honey, at least you could pay a couple of bucks for poppies or something like that. Yeah, well, that was from Coach's Corner Saturday night on Hockey Night in Canada, and of course, as you're well aware by now, that will be the last Coach's Corner with Don Cherry. A lot of reaction to this right across the country yesterday and today, as you can imagine. And initially, I I didn't actually think it would get to this point. I mean, Don Cherry is a guy who has said controversial things in the past. This is another one to add to the list. But but clearly, this was different. Now, even though I was surprised that, that it came to this, it did, even by Don Cherry's standards, seem unnecessarily divisive. Frankly, even you could argue unnecessarily cruel. Look, I know that to a lot of people, Don Cherry represents something. He represents maybe a Canada that once was or a game of hockey that once was. And certainly in a lot of ways, maybe those two things weave together. But the idea that immigrants to Canada are making Canada less Canada or that immigrants to Canada are not grateful about being here in Canada. That's where it becomes needlessly divisive and needlessly cruel. I don't understand the point he was trying to make. I don't understand why he needed to say it that way. I don't think he was drawing upon any empirical data about the wearing of poppies or the lack of poppies being worn. Maybe you can make an argument that not enough Canadians wear poppies. But to to try to divide us between old and new Canadians or white and non-white Canadians, I don't think is helpful. So I think there was an opportunity, though, to, to make this right. I think Sportsnet realized that their brand was hit by this. I think Ron McLean realized that his own brand was hit by this. And I would have thought maybe that Don Cherry would have and could have recognized that even his own brand was damaged by this. Sportsnet apologized. Ron McLean apologized. But Don wouldn't. And I think that's what did it. Sportsnet made the announcement yesterday that that was going to be the final coach's corner Sportsnet and Don Cherry were parting ways. Well, I'm plenty of time for your reaction. 403-974-8255. But let's first bring into the conversation Scott Stinson, national sports columnist for Post Media, nationalpost.com. And he's been following all the drama this weekend. Scott, thank you so much for joining us here. Hey, Rob, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Um, you know, you wrote a, a column kind of in that in-between period uh, after this aired, but before they had made the decision to part ways with Don Cherry, wondering if it would get to this point. Were, were you surprised? Um, that's a, it's funny. Like, I, I kind of wasn't surprised in that once it was pretty clear that Sportsnet was apologizing and was say, calling what, what Don Cherry said, um, you know, discriminatory and offensive, and Ron McLean follows that up by apologizing 
pretty abjectly, both on social media and then on air Sunday night, it really felt like they had, I don't want to say they painted themselves into a corner, but they had put down a marker to say, we're not going to let stand what was said by Don Cherry. And so that led you to think, well, he's either going to have to apologize in a similar vein to Ron McClain, or they're going to have to move on because, you know, you just can't, you can't kind of acknowledge that what he said was discriminatory and then act as though, anyway, we'll see him again on Saturday night. And that'll be that. Like, there, there had to be some other shoe dropping on the story, and it was either, I think, going to be Cherry walking it back or, or some severe punishment being taken, and obviously we've seen what happened. I mean, at the time I wrote the, the first column yesterday, which then became the second column, mm-hmm. um, it seemed pretty clear that, that Cherry wasn't going to back off his stance. He had said to the, the Toronto Sun's Joe Warmington that he he was fine with what he said and he meant what he said and and he was sticking by it. So we sort of had an indication that he wasn't going to be convinced otherwise. And I don't know how you know much there was in terms of further discussions with Rogers and Sportsnet and, and to suggest that he needed to to try to make him understand why what he said couldn't stand. But um, obviously, whatever those discussions were, didn't amount to much. You know, and that's the thing, because I think a lot of people trying to defend Don Cherry have argued, well, you know, maybe that people are taking what he said out of context, or people didn't really understand what he was trying to say. I mean, given the fact that, that he has clearly declined any opportunity to clarify or walk this back or anything, mm-hmm. suggests that he really wasn't taken out of context. I agree with you, and I, I just think if you watch the clip and, and you played it on the intro, like, Look, it, he didn't use the word immigrants, but it's very clear that what he is saying is there are people who come here and they ought to wear poppies and I don't see them wearing poppies. And I go to other places like small towns and I see good Canadians there wearing poppies. And I mean, it, it doesn't take much of a rhetorical leap to understand what it was he was trying to say. And as you say, if if perhaps we were all misinterpreting that incorrectly um, and it was just an issue of he thinks more people ought to wear poppies, he had every opportunity, it would seem, to say that. And, and to say, I, you know, frankly, Don Cherry is not the most, the clearest communicator we've ever had. And yeah. he does kind of ramble and when he gets, in, especially when he gets worked up. And I think a lot of people would have said, had he had he softened it some way and said, this is not the way I intended it to say, some people wouldn't have, that wouldn't have been enough for some. But I think a lot of people would have said, well, whatever, like he's, he's, he's moved on and we can too kind of thing. But the fact that he chose not to do that and, and not to try to explain himself in some other way suggests that as he seems to have said, he did mean that. He, did, he does think that immigrants need to wear more poppies and that they should be shamed for not doing so and you know we haven't really got into whether or not that's even true like as you say there's doesn't really seem to be any evidence of it other than apparently what he claims to see with his own eyes but right it's just an absurd position to hold and to assume that you can go on a national broadcaster and say that and not get called well and that's the issue right and and i mean you know when people think about well how does he know this as you say it's what he sees with his eyes but when you see someone with your eyes 
I mean, how do you know they're an immigrant? My father was born in Scotland. I don't think anybody yeah. looks at him and says, oh, that guy's an immigrant, right? Clearly now we're getting into this, this area of, of race. And, and I mean, I don't, I don't want to put words in Don Cherry's mouth beyond what he already said here. But when he's looking at somebody, what is it about that person that convinces him it's an immigrant? It's, it's kind of uncomfortable territory here. It surely is. And, and you know, you, you mentioned in your opening there that he said controversial things before and he's always managed to survive them. And, and the thing I, I wrote yesterday was like, that's all true, but this seemed like a new level of of outspokenness, if you can call it that, for Don Cherry. There was a, there was a nasty edge to it, um, and it did fall quite obviously on racial lines for the reasons you just mentioned. Like, you can't sort of say... I see people who aren't wearing poppies and they come here and they want our, they love our country, but they don't want to do something like it's very clear what he's talking about. He's talking about visible minorities. There's no other way to interpret that Mark. And people who are trying to claim otherwise today are either, you know, twisting themselves in knots to try to explain what it is he said, or they're being totally disingenuous and pretending that they think he meant something else yeah. other than what it's pretty clear he said. So yeah, it's a uh, it's it's a sensitive issue for sure, and I think the reason why Sportsnet was pretty quick to denounce what he said, and I think why we saw, you know, Budweiser Canada, which sponsors Coach's Corner, was resolute behind the decision, despite the fact that the only reason I'm sure they ever wanted to sponsor Coach's Corner was because they knew that it had Don Cherry in it, and he was a big draw and. They get to show the Budweiser commercial, you know, after the coach's corner opening and before they actually start talking. It's like probably one of the biggest ad spots yeah. in all of Canadian television. And still, they were dismayed enough by what was said to agree that they needed to move on. Well, that's the thing, right? And you think about how big Don Cherry was. And now this question, can he be bigger than... Uh, than the product. Is he bigger than Hockey Night in Canada? Is he bigger than Sportsnet? Because anybody else working for Hockey Night in Canada or other Sportsnet broadcasts or, frankly, any other Rogers broadcast, they would have been gone instantly. So can you really have a situation where someone is above everybody else? Well, I know. I don't think you can is, is a short answer. And it, it would be completely untenable um, to have some sort of double standard where he's allowed to say basically whatever he wants every week. And everybody else, every other broadcaster at the company needs to, you know, adhere to normal professional standards. I mean, I, one of the funny things I've seen in the blowback to this are the people who are complaining about his lack of freedom of speech. <laughs> and I'm going, you know, every column I write could be the last column I write because I might say something that somebody doesn't catch and they have my my bosses have no recourse other than to say, this is totally beyond the pale and we're moving on. It happens. It happens to columnists. I shouldn't say it happens all the time, but it's not uncommon for a print journalist to write an article that ends their career. And that's not a freedom of speech issue. This, no. That's an, that's a matter of, you know, you, you have, uh, you're representing a company, your views are being put out there by a publisher or a broadcaster, and we're all accountable for what we say. And this is a case where, you know, frankly, the free market spoke and he said what he wanted to say. He didn't want to apologize for it. And the people who pay his salary and, and also the advertisers that pay into them seem to have 
been comfortable enough to say it's time to move on. Well, that's the thing, right? I mean, if my employers make a point of saying, you know, Rob, we really want to grow our, our audience in, in rural areas, uh, you know, people who, who work in, in small towns or work in farms. And if I come on the radio and say, boy, farmers are, are lazy. People who work in small towns are, are backwards and stupid. I, I'd be off the air in a second, right? I mean, so here we have a situation with the NHL, Rogers, which, of course, has the NHL rights. They're trying to grow their audience. They're trying to, to um, you know, bring in more diverse communities uh, to, to watch hockey, to care about hockey, get involved in hockey so as, as they attempt to grow the game and grow the audience this this goes against what they're trying to do doesn't it it does and i mean the the, the mere fact that there is a punjabi broadcast on hockey night in canada now uh, has been for a while under the rogers leadership you know they are they are trying to reach other communities and it is it's kind of like the dirty secret of of hockey in this country that is be, it has become very um, elitist in terms of the money it costs to play hockey and especially at the competitive levels and it's become a very homogeneous um, sport in terms of demographics because the the new Canadian communities the second generation types who didn't necessarily grow up playing the game it's not an easy game to necessarily pick up and the equipment's expensive and all of that. So this is not something that's new to the leaders of hockey, whether it's Hockey Canada or the NHL. They're aware that that there needs to be outreach into other communities. And certainly you end up having a situation like this where like the flagship hockey show and the most uh, recognizable figure on that show is talking openly about disdain for immigrants who don't follow the, the rules he would like them to follow it's not a good look at all. And I, I mean, it just, it kind of makes what everything that happened further or half an afterward, um, all the more obvious because there kind of had to be some fallout. Unless again, as we've said before, unless he was willing to, to, uh, soften his stance and, or acknowledge that maybe he chose the wrong words or whatever it was he might've done. All right. Much more at nationalpost.com. Scott, thanks so much for joining us here this afternoon. Appreciate it. Okay, Rob. Have a great day. You too. Take care. Scott Stinson, national sports columnist for Post Media. Uh, More from him at uh, nationalpost.com. But ultimately, we would only proceed with changes like um, creating an Alberta pension plan, for example, uh, or an Alberta uh, uh, police force, if that was endorsed by the majority of Albertans in a fair and free democratic referendum vote. All right, some comments today from the Premier after a pretty important speech on Saturday and a coinciding announcement of the creation of a panel, the Fair Deal Panel. Uh, a number of prominent individuals who will study Alberta's place in Confederation and how that can be improved. Uh, Preston Manning is on this list. There are three sitting MLAs, uh, Drew Barnes, Miranda Rosen, uh, and Tani Yao, uh, and some other prominent Albertans uh, who will study these questions. Uh, So they have a mandate to consider such things as a provincial revenue agency, a provincial pension plan, a provincial police force, among other things. Now, a lot of this does go back to that uh, original firewall letter uh, almost two decades ago, raising these same sort of concerns. Is Alberta getting a fair deal in Confederation? How can Alberta's independence be strengthened within Canada? Well, one of the signatories to that letter is uh, on the line with us here this afternoon. Uh, he, of course, is Ted Morton, former uh, provincial cabinet minister, currently a fellow with the School of Public Policy at the University of Calgary. Ted, great to have you with us. You're welcome to the program. 
Good afternoon, Rob. Uh, let me get your own impressions, uh, just uh, the Premier's speech on Saturday, the, the composition of this panel, and just kind of this uh, general direction on this. Well, I think you've seen it and you you hear it on, on the radio and mm-hmm. on social media. There's a kind of an avalanche out there um, of uh, anger and frustration and fear. And uh, a lot of it is headed towards the, the separatist option. Uh, Premier Kenny made it clear that's not his, certainly not what he's interested in. So I think with this panel, he's trying to steer that frustration, anger, fear into a constructive, constructive direction. And... Uh, basically opening up a big public dialogue with this committee that uh, things that, you know, there's something between the status quo and the two extremes of status quo and separation. Yeah, that's an important point because they, he, the premier has been accused of, of fueling the flames here or, or pandering to separatists, but, but you see it the, the other way, right? That he's, he's kind of giving a more healthy outlet to a lot of these frustrations. If this isn't handled properly and, and, and some concessions, Alberta does not take some steps to to strengthen its position vis-a-vis Ottawa, and hopefully Ottawa in response will will uh, do something, particularly on the on the pipeline file, the carbon tax file. Uh, if that doesn't happen, uh, we're potentially over a cliff. And I think that the object of this committee and the kind of public consultation that's going to take place, and if, as you just said, anything that comes out of this committee will be put you know, to a referendum, so it's not going to be a decision by Jason Kenney or the UPC caucus. At the end, it'll be a decision by all Albertans. So mm-hmm. I think that should give people a certain degree of comfort, and let's, let's have a frank discussion, and let's, and let's put all of those old Alberta agenda uh, options aren't so old anymore. Let's put them on the table and discuss them. Right. Do you think then that we're going to we need to look at the merits of each of these and we need to consider them on their own, or is, is this more about kind of using these as bargaining chips in order to get Ottawa to, to, to proceed in a certain direction, whether it be on pipelines or other economic issues? Like, how do we judge whether or not these individual ideas make sense for Alberta? Yeah, each, one, each one has some, some pros and cons. They have to be uh, considered, studied, and debated uh, separately. Uh, some of them have uh, just intrinsic value. I would say uh, an Alberta police force is one, although as others, and I think including you have pointed out, it could cost a little more, although I would be happy to point out other advantages. Something like the Alberta Pension Plan is more complex, but that has the additional uh, value of creating uh, uh, pressure, if you like, uh, on Ottawa, because if Alberta walked out of the CPP, uh, Ottawa has a big headache. Oh, yeah. No, I think that's certainly true. I mean, the idea of a provincial police force, it, it to me, I, I think maybe just the symbol of it and, and people feeling as though there's less Ottawa in our lives, maybe that has some some symbolic value. But what, what do you see as the advantage of a provincial police force? Uh, that, for one, uh, much more effective uh, dealing with rural crime. Uh, again, as, as you know very well, because I know you talk about it in the afternoons, uh, the situation in rural Alberta, particularly anyone within uh, 60 miles of, of a city, is is basically lawlessness right now. And uh, the RCMP, in effect, reports to Ottawa. Ottawa has a set of norms that I don't think emphasizes or stresses effective law enforcement to the extent that Albertans want and need. I think I think an APP, an Alberta police force, would uh, be much more efficient, much more responsive get rid of the bilingualism requirements. I think that would recruit or attract 
more capable people. A lot of people won't go into any sort of federal civil service anymore because of, you know, you can only go to the mid-level unless you spend the rest of your life studying French. So I, I, I think you pointed out, others have pointed out, it would cost a little more mm -hmm. uh, for Alberta. But again, maybe even over time, uh, properly organized and taking over some of the municipal policing as well. Maybe uh, in five years, we'd back to do a break even on the cost side and have the other advantages. Right. Yeah. And I think there's something to that. I mean, my point has been that, that I think a lot of our, our frustration, it, it stems from economic anxiety, the perception that, that Ottawa is in the way of, of fulfilling our economic potential or, or creating economic worse, opportunities. It's worse. It's worse than in the way now. That that's kind of been the well. Case okay, but I mean, then, but if that's ago, the issue, the way that yeah. an Alberta provincial police force really has nothing to do with that. You're you're absolutely right on that. Uh, something like an Alberta uh, Alberta pension plan, which puts Ottawa in an underfunded position, right? That can be used for leverage on pipelines. So that's I think in terms of the the, the dozen or the half a dozen or so options that are out there the pension plan has the most leverage potentially to uh get concessions from ottawa on on other uh, other uh issues well specifically pipeline pipeline issues climate change issue and that and um i think preston has pointed out preston manning's pointed out that you know they're uh, trudeau's in a minority government uh he'll get support from the conservatives on helping alberta Mm -hmm. And Alberta is also in a rather unique position, certainly in my lifetime, where it has uh, a lot of allies in, in other provincial premiers, particularly in, in, in Ontario. Uh, I don't think in my lifetime, and maybe not in Alberta's history, has there been an Ontario premier that was supportive, explicitly and strongly supportive of uh, what Alberta is asking for. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, there's some irony, too, in the sense that we're kind of feeling we, like we want more provincial autonomy. But, but you know, one of the biggest issues we're facing at the moment is an area that, that really needs to be federal jurisdiction, and that, that's getting pipelines approved. And, and uh, Premier Kenny has been very clear that his priority number one is completion, first, of uh, TMX expansion, and then secondly, uh, either the repeal or modification of tanker bans and, and C-69 so mm -hmm. we can get more pipelines. So he, he's, uh, I remember when he was thinking of coming back to Alberta and, and trying to reunite the party, two conservative parties, I, I said, oh, yes, you should do this. It'd be much more fun to be the premier of Alberta than to be <laughs> leader of the opposition in the House of Commons across from Justin Trudeau. If I had to talk to him now, I'd have to say, I'm sorry I said it would be more fun. It, he has a, a real <laughs> yeah. tough, tough job, both on the budget side and on this whole balancing act, dealing with channeling this separatist sentiment in a constructive, not a destructive uh, direction, and, and all at the same time uh, keeping a working relationship with uh, Prime Minister Trudeau. Right, and, and still doing what he can do to, to make Alberta an attractive place to invest. Yep. No, it's, uh, I tried to get that job once. <laughs> yes, I'm not sure I'd want, if somebody said you want it today, I'm not sure I'd take it. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's quite a task he has. Um, but regarding the, the, the firewall letter from, uh, I guess it was 18 years ago, what, what was, yeah. what was the backdrop at the time? I mean, there's some, some similarities, obviously, to now, some, some clear differences, but what was the setting of the time as you saw it? Those of us, I think everybody who signed that letter had been active in the startup of the Reform Party. 
and uh, had worked hard all through the decade of the 90s uh, on you know, getting the, building the Reform Party, the issues that it stood for, fiscal responsibility, elected Senates, a uh, more responsive Ottawa. Um, you know, it was the West wants in, right? And by 2001, 2002, uh, it seemed like that wasn't working. Uh, the Senate, uh, you know, our first elected senator, Stan Waters, got appointed. Uh, people like Bert Brown and myself, who were elected in 98, <laughs> we weren't even invited to Ottawa for an interview. No. And uh, so there was, uh, amongst those people who had been maybe in the vanguard organizationally and putting a lot of work on the Reform Party, I think the, the firewall was a reaction to that. What I would say is, though, that um, it was not accepted either by uh, Premier Klein or probably by a majority of Albertans, because Alberta was doing well then, right? Uh, oil and gas prices were coming back. Investment was coming in. Uh, we, were, we were back to a balanced budget. You know, why, why, why shake up the status quo if things are good? And I think that's the difference now. The status quo is not good at all. Uh, people are hurting, and, and, and the economy very well, the job situation is actually likely to get worse before it gets better. Uh, so I think the ideas are still valid, and there's a much more receptive uh, political, social, and economic climate uh, for the Alberta agenda than there was in 2001. But yeah, it's interesting because, yeah, I mean, at the time there was a liberal government. I mean, at present we have a liberal government, and there's some obvious and legitimate concerns with liberal policy, but... I mean, at the same time, even if Andrew Scheer and the Conservatives had won the election, we'd still have some legitimate beefs about Alberta's place in Confederation. And I don't think a Conservative government would necessarily, you know, make significant changes. So what about the perception that this is, you know, uh, we've got a beef with the Liberals and that this is all political? I think uh, that that's a serious misunderstanding of uh, the situation. I think there's a growing realization that the problems are, are structural, not just, you know, this policy or that policy or winning this election or, or losing this election. You, you look at the trend, and you've seen the numbers uh, since 1961, over $200 billion of left this province net, $20 billion just, uh, just in the last decade, at, a, at, the very time that, uh, at the very time that we've been in our now sixth year of recession and nine years in a row of uh, deficit budgets. Um, uh, I think there's a growing realization that the issue, the problem is structural, not, not uh, just, if you like, not this election or this policy. You know, Steve, you know, our, our Alberta's man, Stephen Harper was there for almost a decade. Right. And now less than five years after he's left, we're, we're, uh, apparently or certainly seemingly as vulnerable or, or more vulnerable to destruct destructive federal policies than ever before all right well we'll see what comes to this panel uh ted morton always appreciate the insight and thanks for making some time for us here today okay you're welcome rob all the best to you take care uh that is ted morton uh, currently a fellow with the school of public policy at the university of calgary former mla former provincial cabinet minister former yes as he mentioned pc leadership candidate former elected senator and, uh, yes, one of the signatories to that firewall letter in 2001. And that, yes, Stephen Harper signed. And, yes, Stephen Harper went on to become prime minister. And, I mean, it just illustrates the, the, the challenges of making those kinds of fundamental changes to confederation.
But that would be my, my, my one bone of contention with this. Would we be doing this if Andrew Scheer had won the election? And if not, why not? Now, part of this is specific to liberal policy, right? Part of the mandate of the panel, or at least the priorities that the premier has defined. Repeal of Bill C-48. Repeal or at least significant mitigation of C-69. Right? So that speaks directly to liberal policy that presumably we would have seen a much different approach on. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.